crazier and crazier. Well, we had a, we've had a wonderful weekend. We did the Frontline Doctors yesterday. Started at 11, ended at like 2.30, 3 o'clock, yeah. We, uh, we had to turn, sadly, we had to turn away almost 300 people. Uh, it, was, it was swamped. And I, I got here, I couldn't find a parking space. I had to drive home and walk here. Thanks a lot. Um, but, and I think, how many did you say last service, Micah, we had online? 10,000 views already. And, and by the way, <clears throat> that's 10,000 views without uh, the censoring propaganda of, you know, promoting YouTube. We're, we've been put in YouTube jail. That's Rumble. And we got 10,000 views on Rumble. That's really good. And so, yeah. And then uh, we had Bill Federer last night, and he hit the ball so far out of the park, it's still sailing. And I, I was so blessed by that. And I, uh, I asked him to come back today. Uh, we're going to share the pulpit together. Uh, the message that, in the way the Lord used him first service was phenomenal. It's the, the timing on it is, is really critical. But before we uh, get into the message and some of the things I want to share about this past week, I was in Phoenix, and I'll share with you a bunch of stuff in relation to that. I want to uh, introduce two folks uh, one in particular, uh, it's a group of, of folks that you saw the movie, the pro-life movie that's coming, and uh, these, these two ladies, uh, uh, Tracy and Liesel, have come all the way to be with you to answer questions in relation to the pro-life movie. This is the number one moral issue in America. Now, if you say, no, no, Black Lives Matter is the number one issue, okay, I will contend with you because 13% of the population is black in America. You cut that in half, 6.5% male, female, and then you reduce the 6.5% female to childbearing years, 4%. 4% of the population of America is responsible for 40% of the abortions. It's a holocaust on the black community. We are ripping those little babies apart in their mother's womb and flushing their parts into the sewer systems of our nation, and the governor says that's essential, but the church is not, and the church is complicit if it's silent. And so our push to bring Seth Gruber on, uh, on site and to provide him our studio to be what I consider the Charlie Kirk of the pro-life movement. This is deliberate. We want to end abortion. It is a holocaust. It is a, the number one moral issue in America. If we don't get this right, uh, we are in jeopardy. And, and this has been legal since 1973, which is beyond me. And the church has become silent, spineless. And then you got these gals, Tracy and Liesel, who have come up and they've committed their life to this. They're gonna be here to answer questions. We gals stand up, let everyone see you so they see your pretty faces and be able to. <laughs> we have to be about this, it's critical. And thank you for all you do. Uh, and, and Seth isn't with you guys because Seth is at another church. We're getting him in every church in America that we can. Uh, I know he's in Missouri uh, next week at another large church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Um, so that guy's busy, busy, busy. All right, now I get to introduce a dear friend. I love this man. He's fearless. Uh, he has taken on the county like we are, uh, although they dismissed our case yesterday. Yeah, but we appealed. We're going to appeal it, so whatever. And, and you, know, the, the, you know what they dismissed it on is they said uh, that their argument was there's no emergency, even though we're under emergency orders. Even though our students are losing their scholarships, our nurses are being fired, our doctors are being fired, there's no emergency. And we don't want to show you the data in the discovery phase. I don't know where this judge came from, and I sure, I, I, at this point, looking at the law, I don't know that, I, I'd be shocked if he went to law school. If he did, uh, I, I don't know which one that was, probably some Caribbean island somewhere. <laughs> but we are going to appeal this, and we're not going to stop, and that's what has to happen. We have to push back. Long before I became a litigious pastor, I met a litigious pastor, a man who would take on government and tyranny, and he did it on behalf of the homeless, and he won, and he won here in Ventura County. I adore this man. He has a heart for um, the Hispanic community. I don't think he speaks Spanish fluently, which is strange. <laughs> and yet God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise because he's had unbelievable inroads in the Spanish community, and he is a treasure. And God put it on his heart to run for governor. And a lot of you guys heard Larry Elder, and we've had John Cox come and speak. Um, 
But I, I asked Sam to come and I asked him to share because of all the candidates that, you know, like he doesn't have name recognition like Larry does. But one cool thing about Sam is that he does have a pathway to victory. And it's one that folks haven't looked at. And he just might be able to pull this off. And, and I've never endorsed anyone. I just said, California needs a new governor. Welcome, Larry Elder. California needs a new governor. Welcome, John Cox. I want to do it again. California needs a new governor. Welcome, Sam Gallucci. There you go, man. Bless you. Thank you, Rob. I love your pastor. Thank you. Well, you've heard from a politician and you have heard from a celebrity and now stands before you a pastor. And I have to tell you that all through history of this nation, it has been the pastors that have stood in the gap that God has used from the very founding, the founding fathers that came, the pilgrims, it was a pastor that gave them a pathway to a government, to the framing of our constitution, the, independent of, uh, the Declaration of Independence, it was the pastors who through their sermons gave them what they needed. And in the War of Independence, it was the pastors who took off their black robes, bore arms and said, put me in, and fought for this nation. And God has called this pastor to take off his black robe and get into this race because this state has been taken over by evil and God wants it back. The level of immorality and sin that has been legislated into law is God's highest priority because they are now indoctrinating our kids to create a lifestyle that is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And that is a line too far. And I want to tell you just a little about me and how God has prepared me. I'm a 60-year resident of California. I was saved in 1980, was married in 81, started my career with IBM. This is before the internet was a thing, before Microsoft, before Apple. And I became one of the pioneers in the tech space. And as a pioneer, God used me to create something from nothing several times. I'm an entrepreneur, started several companies, was one of the founders of an industry called customer relationship management. By the age of 35, I was traveling the world as a luminary, speaking in front of tens of thousands of people on radio, on, on television. By the time I was 40, I was running a multinational company. And um, I left that industry at the age of 42 to save my marriage, 40 years this month. And then, God called me and my wife, God called me to become a pastor. I became, I went back to school, became a licensed, ordained, evangelical, spirit-filled pastor. And my first assignment was to the homeless. I became a pastor to the homeless and learned the heart of God. We created a ministry called the Kingdom Centers. God Speak is one of our supporters. And I've helped several thousand off the street in the last 14 years. And then... As Rob said, the city of Ventura shut us down, violated our First Amendment rights. We took him to court, won a unanimous uh, victory in the Ninth Circuit in 2014, a RELUPA claim, and 3,000 churches have used that to protect their religious liberty. And then miraculously, while we were shut down and in this brutal lawsuit, I've had guns pointed at me, knives at my throat, I've had every kind of Vicious things said about me and my wife. We stood in victory. God took me to the fields of Oxnard, and, and I saw the, the, uh, the migrant farm workers. And for the last seven years, we have been ministering to Hispanic migrant farm workers. I've planted five Latino churches in those seven years. So here's what God did without my knowing it until this battle came. He gave me the business experience to run the state. He gave me the actual compassion experience to solve the greatest issue that we face that we're unified as a people in California, the homeless issue. And he's earned, allowed me to earn the trust of the largest single voting bloc in the history of California, the Hispanics. And I am in this race because I'm tired of us losing. It's time to win again. And here's the thing, here in California, we haven't run a statewide gubernatorial race for over 20 years, and Insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different result. 
I think it's very disingenuous to talk about all the things you're going to do as if you have a four-year term, when the reality is you have one year in office and you've got to immediately run again. And so what God has given me is a strategy to fix the foundation so we can win again for the next 30 years. That's why I'm in this race, to save our state, because I'm tired of seeing people go to Texas and other places when this is the greatest state in the nation. So here is what I'm going to do, five things. I'm going to do four for the fifth thing. We need to win the battle in 21 for the war in 22. The first is to build a new coalition, do exactly what Trump did. Under the radar, he went after Democrats. They didn't see it coming. They couldn't even rig the system enough. I am going after the 40% of the population that's Hispanic. Seven million registered voters, thank you. Thank you for uh, Gavin to send all of them a ballot. Guess what I'm gonna do with that ballot? Get them to vote for a Republican. With a new coalition, we will be able to silence the voice of this Goliath of lies. We'll be able to pick up the sword of truth, this sword of Goliath, and slay this lie. The second thing I'm going to do is establish in that first year to win in 22, a rumble station, and we're gonna break big tech and start to communicate to the 39 million people in the state. This is going to be a campaign of truth like you've never seen. We're going to have a revival of truth. I'm going to, as governor, tell the truth about COVID. I'm going to tell the truth about all of these vaccines. I'm going to tell the truth about everything they're working on, all the lies they've told us. And, and people in California, they shall know the truth, and the truth will what? It's about freedom. The second thing I will do is restore confidence in our vote. As governor, through executive order, I'll do two key things that I can do. First, I'll order all the counties to clean up their voter rolls. That has to be done. And I'll have a team that makes sure they do. The second thing I will do is, through executive order, declare over the news ways that because Californians don't have confidence in our vote, I'm shutting down the Dominion machines, and we're going to count manually. The third thing I will do is restore confidence that California values still exist. That's why there's hopelessness and fear. We don't think our values exist. That's why people are leaving. What I will do through executive order is stop. I will say I'm stopping every illegal, immoral, unconstitutional law that's going after our kids and our parents and our rights, and we're going to take them into the courts and let the courts fix them. That's what I will do as governor of the, of the state of California. See, here you have, God has given us an opportunity. Every single person in this race gets us to 50% plus one. But then you get a choice. If we get there, Newsom's out, and you get a choice to choose your next governor. And I want to say to you, join my team, because I believe California doesn't need another politician, and I believe California doesn't need another celebrity. California needs a pastor. God bless you. And God bless the great state of California. Thank you. Good job, man. Thanks. Bless you. You're getting good on the stump there. Yeah. Good ideas. Uh, early voting starts August 16th. And uh, you can actually download your ballot on the internet. That's, that's really safe, isn't it? <laughs> Fascinating. In New York, uh, you don't need any identification to vote, but you can't get lunch without a uh, vaccination passport. And, and if you guys are wondering, uh, you know, will this all go away? No. No, it's not going away. All of you were hoping it would. It's not. And uh, I, I just want to tell you, there's the Delta variant. We, we covered this with uh, Dr. Keith and Dr. Mikovits. There's the Delta variant. And then there's, there's the Gamma variant. <clears throat> They're all resistant to the vaccine. Uh, and, and I just want you to know, the last variant of COVID is going to be totalitarianism. Yes. There's going to be segregation. That's where they're going. You don't have to believe me. You, you can dismiss me. You can write me off. So far, we haven't been wrong. I don't, I don't want to be the harbinger of bad news. I'm just telling you right now, 
anyone who is, who, who is going to look at the horizon and prepare for this, you have to choose this day whom you'll serve. There, there's, 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 yeah, amen. There, there are some that you, you just want to lay low and make it go away. It's not going to go away. Everyone's going to, it's going to require a cost from somebody and it's going to challenge your faith. You're either going to stand for truth or you're going to yield to fear and a lie. And, and you're, you're going to yield to fear and a lie for, for, Selfish reasons. You're not going to invest in the future for our children and our grandchildren. You're, you're going to worry about your own. You're, you're going to protect the temporary and not worry about the future generations. This is the church's greatest moment. And, and yet, sadly, we're watching the largest church in California, Saddleback, um, Rick Warren just sent a letter to his congregation. Max and Vask. Uh, mask and Vax. Mask and Vax. Mask and Vax. Mask and Vax. Exclamation point four times. I, I, and then Ed Stetzer's filling in for him because he's not feeling well because he has COVID. And Ed Stetzer is, is the worst of all. And, and I'm saying this to you because the church is divided. And it's going to get harder and, and as I was back in Phoenix, <clears throat> we were training 30 new employees for Turning Point Faith, 25 and under, amazing young people, ready to, to, to go through this land and find those churches who are willing to believe in truth enough to stand for it. Because faith without works is dead. And when Jeremiah said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. It wasn't, it wasn't the sin of the nation that God was saying. When he said, turn from their wicked ways, the wicked ways is apathy and inactivity and an unwillingness to engage because you're afraid of conflict. And, and if we don't stand, who will? I mean, we, we, we serve a king and who declares that we are more than conquerors and no weapon fashioned against us will stand and yet when we're given the opportunity to stand in the face of evil and contend, we avoid conflict because we think that conflict is being meek. Blessed are the meek for the shall inherit the earth. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness described in, in the Greek is the idea of a bit in a, in a stallion's mouth. This massive beast of strength is, is directed by the master's hand with that bit in his mouth. And the question is asked of those who declare themselves meek, is that master the Lord or the governor? Is that master truth or fear? What motivates you? God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. Are you moved by truth and will you stand for that? Are you strength under control? And, and yet we're watching the church bow to deception, bow to lies and bow to tyranny. And they're sacrificing the future of our children and our grandchildren for that purpose, thinking that that is the Christian way. We have created a fellowship of the spineless. And, and, and now... All of us are going to need to make a decision. And, and I'm not, listen, I, I'm not here to frighten you and motivate you by fear. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not afraid. I'm all in. There's nothing they can take from me. I'm ready to go. Truth and my, my kids' future means more to me than anything they could take from me. And we all have to have that same position. And the pushback and the challenge has come by the church. Uh, the last two weeks, every sermon I give, someone writes a letter. Some pastor. One in particular had an issue with <clears throat> when I went through the four different eschatologies. I don't know if you remember that. And I covered Jeremiah 18, the potter's house. And then Luke, when we talked about the parable of the Minas. And the, the pastor was upset because I, I was too hard on the Eschatology means study the end times, uh, you know, because for time to exist, there needs to be a beginning and an end. 
and the Lord reveals the end. And, and we've speculated and we've come up with different schools of thought. I went through all four of them and you haven't heard the message, go and listen to it. But my bottom line is every eschatology comes with an asset or a liability. And Calvary chapels are pre-trib, pre-millennial. We believe in a rapture, pre-tribulation. We believe in a rapture. We'll be raptured before the tribulation, seven-year period. I don't have time to go through it. And, and when I was stating that, I said, look, regardless of your position of eschatology or your view of the end times, regardless, you are not permitted to use your eschatology to justify your apathy and your inactivity. Unknowingly, the church has ruined the future of our kids and our grandkids because, especially for Calvaries, for 52 years we've expected the Lord's soon return. I I hope he comes back right now. I I was hoping yesterday. (laughs) I really want to get off this roller coaster, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Please, Mr. Wizard, stop! But he's appointed us for such a time as this. And And if I do not plant seeds for the future generations to plant trees of whose shade I'll never know, I'm doing them a disservice because I'm myopic, self-centered, and I'm not forward-thinking. And so when these young people come and we're training them, and and I got that pushback from Pastor, then I was with these kids. I'm going to be 57 on Tuesday, so that's a hint for my birthday. Big gifts, lots. But anyway. (laughs) But... uh, but I was telling him, I said, look, I'm 57. I'm not going to live to be 114. I'm past the halfway point. I'm picking up speed. You guys are young. And you're going to be stepping into rooms with guys my age. And they're apathetic and they're set in their ways. And I said, conservatively speaking, there's 60 to 80 million evangelical Christians in America. Liberally speaking, over 100 million. Of which half of them aren't even registered to vote. And of the half that are registered to vote, only half of those vote in a presidential election and 12% in a non-presidential election. And faith without works is dead. And we live in a constitutional public of the people, by the people, for the people. Go into those churches. Don't contend on their theology. Don't correct their aberrant theology. You're not there to evangelize, proselytize. You don't do any of that. You have one job. Activate good people for good government and show them their responsibility and, and if they say, well, the Lord's coming back, it's a juggernaut, you can't stop it, you're polishing brass on the Titanic, you're, 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 in, in, you know, you're contending with God's will. Look at them and say, I understand that. But if you're wrong, the only one who pays that price is my generation. Will you just, for the sake of my generation, if you're wrong, allow us to get your people to pull a lever for righteous government. And they're like, well, that's an easy answer. And I was helping the kids with this. And then I, I got pushed back from a double predestination person saying it's, it's immoral to have a, a voter registration table in a church on a Sunday. I looked at them and I said, then we'll come to your church and if you say that to us, we'll just move on. We'll accept it to whatever level you invite us in. But we need to activate for the sake of this generation. We have, we, have, we have gypped them, and we have work to do. <clears throat> so all, all that transpired. I had the chance to speak at a Freedom Square at uh, uh, Dream City Church in Phoenix, uh, Luke Barnett's church. Uh, Tommy Barnett was a pastor, was a founding pastor. I had a chance to meet him. What a delightful man. And Charlie had me on stage. There were thousands of people, and, and they're making an impact. And we're watching as these these. Freedom squares are occurring across the country. We want to activate 1,000 churches. We want to get, of the 50 largest churches in America, we want to hit them and have them do freedom squares. We want to awaken the populace to their responsibility of the greatest document of freedom with the exception of the word of God that has ever been penned by man when in the course of human events it becomes necessary. It was written for all people for all time. It's the greatest form of government ever designed and it's worth fighting for. And, And I contend with all of the pastors out there. I've been beaten up because I had Larry Elder come and speak. And I gave the gospel at the beginning and I gave the gospel at the end and then Larry spoke in the middle and as you recall, he didn't invoke Jesus' name once and he didn't hear one scripture. 
But I have to tell you, it was one of the most profound messages I've ever heard of a reconciliation of a son to a father, reconciliation of the issue of, of race in America. He, he doesn't know the Lord that deeply and wouldn't have the ability to do that. And then you get a chance to hear from Pastor Sam Gallucci, who, who has contended in the halls of government and has won. And they, they, they beat you up. The pastors beat you up for doing that. And, and it, it's endless what we get. And I just got to say to all who are tuning in, getting ready to write me a letter, I don't care. <clears throat> the Lord put a couple of verses on my heart. I want to share them with you. Um, these are all written by the Apostle Paul. I love this man. This is a man that was kicked through the streets like a soccer ball. He went from city to city and he, he never asked what the hotels were like. He would always ask what the prisons were like because that's where he spent most of his time. <laughs> he, um, he gave up everything. He was, he was gonna be the, the chief rabbi, or excuse me, the, the, the chief Pharisee of all of Israel. That's a very profitable position. They're very wealthy. And he gave it up. And, and what did he get in return? A prison sentence, beatings, he was at peril of robbers, at perils in the sea, perils of drowning. You just read the, 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 the scriptures and you think, you signed up for that? He was also married. He was part of the Sanhedrin, Pharisee, which it required he would be married. So obviously his wife left him. That's why he said in Corinthians, abandonment of marriage by a non-believing spouse. He just didn't want anything to do with it. She left him. And then you go into these cities that once were occupied by the, 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 the Greek Empire, now run by the Roman Empire, and they'd still have temples to Aphrodite, and, and every, every, every wife and daughter was required to prostitute themselves for the sake of, of bringing income to the temple of Aphrodite. Uh, I think it was twice a year, if I'm not mistaken. So thousands would come in and ply their trade in the city. And so the cities were inundated with sexual dysfunction. It was just a mess. And, and Paul is traveling through these cities, He's all alone. There isn't, there's no Christian radio stations. There's, there's no churches. There's no bookstores. You know, there, there's no K-love. It, it doesn't exist. This is, this is legitimate. You, you open your mouth and profess Christ, you will be beaten. And, and we have enjoyed consumer Christendom for a long time, and that's over now. This is the real deal. And Paul would contend for liberty, and he would contend before government officials and he would write these words. He said in Ephesians, let no one deceive you with empty words, which is what's happening now. For because of these things, the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Here we go. But rather expose them. We're in YouTube prison because we have the audacity to have another medical narrative. We provided frontline doctors yesterday and we did not expect the turnout. We turned away 300 people who couldn't find a seat in this place. We've had 10,000 views. We had 2,000 live views at that, at that moment. And, and we have been proclaiming this for over a year and a half. And we've been saying, the hurricane's coming. The hurricane's coming. Buy supplies, get ready, prepare yourself. You know, frontline doctors will get you a prescription for HCQ and they'll get you, you know, Z-Pack and they'll get you the things you need. And all of a sudden we come into this Delta variant and this wave hits and the hurricane with the demands of, of medical passports, the hurricane has now hit shore. We have young people in this church who have lost their scholastic and, and athletic scholarships because they refuse to get the vaccine and they're no longer in those schools. We have doctors, we have nurses, we have firefighters who will lose their jobs, some already have, because they refuse to get an experimental vaccine that has created more deaths than all vaccine deaths combined since 1986 to contend under emergency authorization with a virus that has a 99.9972% survival rate with children 12 and under, but we're forcing them to be vaccinated to go back to school. This is evil. Yes. 
and it must be exposed. There's no liability for the vaccine companies and we must contend. And people say, Pastor, you need to preach the word. I just did and you need to expose the works of darkness, so get moving. And then Paul wrote to the Philippians. He liked the Ephesians, he also wrote to the Philippians. He said to the Philippians in chapter four, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And God of peace will be with you. Don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. And what do we do? Whatever things are true. It's interesting that that, that word whatever in the Greek, I I looked it up and it means whatever. (laughs) Why are they censoring us? Because a lie cannot survive in the presence of the truth. That's why we're facing censorship and propaganda. That's why all of you are being motivated by fear. It's the only weapon the enemy possesses. But God hasn't given the body of Christ spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And it's important that we contend for truth. People say, you need to just stay to the scriptures. The laws of nature and nature's God. If we had done that, Sir Isaac Newton wouldn't have understood any of the things that he came to understand because his desire was to study that for the glory of God. The word university comes from the word Elohim, which is the name we have for God when it says, let us make man in our image. Elohim means singular plurality and unified diversity. That's where we get the word university. A unified purpose to glorify God with diverse study, biology, geology, etc., pointing to God because he reveals himself. All creation speaks of the glory of God. That's why our founder said the laws of nature and nature's God. And we're supposed to contend for those for the welfare of our neighbors, whatever things are true. And we've created the gospel now to be myopic and truncated that we don't study anything else but the scriptures and we don't want our children to be educated in mathematics or engineering or the medical field or to contend for those things because whatever things are true, do those things. Expose their works of darkness. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He said, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We're to cast down these arguments. We're to contend with them. You don't have the right to suspend our freedoms for something that isn't an emergency. And more importantly, if you want us to be safe, the greatest safety you can give us is our freedom. Now leave us alone and stop it. That is casting down those arguments of tyranny. Now, before I bring Bill up, last thing. This is Acts chapter four. This is the early church. They brought down the Roman Empire. They were disciples and apostles that nobody would have picked them on their team if you had all lined up. They would have been the last picks. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. And I know that because he put me here. I, I, I don't, I, I, that's not fake humility. I know who I am. I'm shocked you're here. You really are desperate. Amen. Amen. I love whoever said that. I'm going to give you a hug later. And so this ragtag group of folks waiting upon the Lord, the Lord endues them with power. And this is what's fascinating. They face civil disobedience. And the reason why I say that is because at this point, they're not going to go away. It is time for us to say, this is the line in the sand. We will resist. We will not take your therapeutic injected. Where, where my skin begins, your, your authority ends. We're done with this. You're not, you're not going any further. We're going to resist. Civil disobedience is critical in this moment, and the church needs it. And this is what happened in Acts 4. 
Peter contended with the elected, or not elected officials, but with the government, government officials, and he was bold. In verse 13 of chapter four, it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, like <laughs> all of us here, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. By the way, I, have, I had never read a book until I became a Christian. God gave me a love for reading. Only God can do that. I'd been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of, uh, of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done uh, through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they may speak to no man in, in this name. They're afraid of the people, by the way. They're a small group of elites that are afraid of all of us and they want us to be separated, muzzled, silenced, and distanced. It's not gonna happen. So they called them and commanded them not to speak, muzzled them, or to teach in the name of Jesus. Censored them. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people. Since they all glorified God for what had been done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitudes who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that anything that he possessed was his own but they had all things in common and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord and great grace was upon them all nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who uh, were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and they laid them out at the apostles feet and they distributed to each one as they had need and, and the, the scripture goes on um, I, I, I jumped ahead I'm sorry I want to come back to verse 23 here it is for God what had been done for the man was over 40 years old, but this is, this is the part. They pray for boldness, verse 23. Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings in the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purposes determined before to be done. Now Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, that's where the place where they were assembled was shaken. It's amazing. I've watched prayer meetings, people calling down, may your kingdom come on this earth, and Lord, would you send it so that we would recognize as you would. And those folks were the answer to their prayer, but they never decided to put feet to their faith. Faith without works is dead. You're the answer to your prayer. There's work to be done. There's school boards to hold accountable. There's governors to resist. There's employers to say, no, you're not doing that. There your children that you pull out and educate them. It's going to require time and effort. You're going to have to make adjustments. The segregation and what's awaiting, I'm not going to go further with that, but I'll just simply say, we're going to, we're going to be all we have. When they were laying it at the apostles' feet, it was the idea that they've taken everything we have, we've got to stick together. This isn't a tithing sermon. I wouldn't even know what to do if he laid things at my feet. I'd be like, Tony, help. <laughs> but we're in this together. And we're not gonna quit. And you have to come to a place where you realize nothing's more valuable to me than liberty for my children and my grandchildren and I will sow seeds for their future no matter what it costs me. And that's where we are today. And the ground where they were assembled was shaken. God filled them with his presence and his power. He wants to do that with all of you. The only way to overcome so great a spiritual force is by the power of the God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand. 
the one who comes to make you more than a conqueror, the one who wants to take away your fear and give you faith, faith that manifests itself by works and, and fearlessness. And it's all found in this relationship with the Lord, his body broken, his blood shed to reconcile you, that you would be a child of the king, that he would manifest himself for his glory in and through your life. I was so blessed yesterday as I had the chance to have dinner with this precious man who has been my friend for a number of years. I have gleaned so much from him. You, you can't face the future unless you understand the past. They wanna rewrite our past and separate our children from us, but this man has been diligent. All of his works are footnoted. He is one of the, the most amazing authors because his works have all been footnoted and his work is remarkable. His scholastic achievements are renowned. And, it, and he doesn't need notes. He just operates from that noggin of his, which is amazing. And so it's time for me to step aside and welcome my dear friend, Bill Federer. <laughs> Bill, I, I, I took him through Acts 4. Last night we had dinner together. I was blessed by, you had pointed out that this isn't the first time that there's been a separation in the scriptures where they've, they've plotted in this capacity I mean, you've gone through the Hegelian dialectic and last night you took through, folks through stuff, but in scripture, you spoke of a specific time where they pitted each other against the other in, in order to separate and conquer and, and then oppress and enslave. You wanna start there or do you wanna go somewhere else? Because I'm just gonna be quiet. Sure, well, I sort of feel like you preached such a great message already that I don't know if there's anything I can add. But I want you to know, church, how much I appreciate your pastor, Rob McCoy, and his wife, Michelle, and they are impacting me and impacting the nation, and I want to thank you for supporting them. And join me in thanking the Lord for such a tremendous pastor that's impacting the nation right here. Amen. Well, Imagine being in heaven and somebody sowing discord in heaven. That's what Lucifer did, right? He got a third of the angels to fight against God and he gets cast down. And so Lucifer's whole modus operandi is division. Yeah. And so one story is the book of Judges. And so this is the 400 year period in Israel before they get King Saul. And Gideon had just defeated 100,000 Midianites. And so there's peace. There's no threat to Israel. But a guy named Abimelech, who is an illegitimate son of Gideon, he goes to a town called Shechem, and he does identity race politics. He says, why should the sons of Gideon reign over you? I am your flesh and your bone. And all the men of Shechem said, well, we have to vote for him because he's our brother. And then he goes to the temple of Baal Barith, and he takes 70 pieces of silver and he hires vain and worthless persons. He hires rioters. He hires Antifa type people. And they commit violence. And they riot and they kill all the sons of Gideon. And Abimelech usurps power and becomes king. Now, the Hebrew Republic would have ended there rather than a century later with Saul had not somebody threw a millstone over a wall and it killed Abimelech. But it's this idea that the same way that Satan sowed discord in heaven, here's Israel was at peace and he decides he's gonna sow discord. And so this attitude has been seen throughout history. One is Machiavelli. He lived 500 years ago in Italy. Italy was a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena. I went to school in Rome for a semester in college. And, and so these city-states had armies and fought. That's where you learned to talk with your hands. Yeah. <laughs> it was funny. We'd see them driving down the car, and they'd, be, they'd have me talk with both hands and not have their hands on the wheel. Anyway. Sorry, where were you? Anyway, I love Italian food. Um, so the... Uh, <laughs> Machiavelli. So Machiavelli's idea was if one prince can control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting between these city-states. So the end is good. So the end justifies the means in his mind. And so if your end is good, you can do any means to get there. Lie, cheat, steal. So if a prince wants to conquer a city in his quest to unify Italy and the city does not want to be conquered, they would hate him. But if this prince pays criminals 
to kill cows, burn barns, smash windows, set things on fire, sort of like Abimelech hiring vain and worthless persons, the people in those cities would panic and they would want someone to come along and fix it. And this prince that paid the rioters would come in and get rid of the very people he bribed to create the crises. Nobody would know the better for it and everyone would praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house, set it on fire, then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher. And they'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. You know that quote a little bit better as never let a good crisis go to waste, right? You and I see a crisis, our response is how can we help people through it? They see a crisis, their response is how can we usurp power through it? So Machiavelli lived in the 1500s. Now let's go to the 1800s. And you got Germany and a professor at the University of Berlin named Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. One of his students is Karl Marx, who started a radical student group called the Young Hegelians. And Hegel, uh, Europe just got conquered by Napoleon. The king didn't want to be conquered that easy again, so he wants to strengthen the state. And so Hegel comes up with this idea called Hegelian dialectics. It's a triangle. Thesis, antithesis, or antithesis, and synthesis. It sounds complicated, but it's not. You start off with a status quo, you create a problem that's real bad, and then everybody's happy to settle for your answer. That's half as bad. And then that becomes the new starting point, and you create another problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer. That's half as bad. Then that's the starting point. You create another problem that's real bad, and everybody time, settles time, for your time answer. Time out, time out. Delta, gamma. <laughs> Booster, separation, go ahead. And so Mao Zedong went, he took this model and came up with the concept of a continuous revolution. So instead of the do a revolution so the socialists can take over, no, 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 this is a continuous, you keep the people constantly in panic and fear. And so each time they give up a little more of their freedom, a little more of their freedom, a little more of their freedom. So the same way Abimelech hired vain and worthless persons and to create this division, the same way that you had Machiavelli, right? This idea that you pay these rioters to create the crisis and now you got Hegel. And so Karl Marx says, okay, how do you create an antithesis? How do you create a crisis? Well, one of them is he did what's called critical theory. He observed all the groups in a country and break them into categories of victims and oppressors, haves and have-nots. Uh, and they do it economically, the proletariat versus the bourgeois, which is the working class versus the business owners. They do it racially. Exploiting historical wounds. Yeah, uh, you know, Bosnian, Croat, Serbs, they do it religiously, Sunni, Orthodox, Shia. They do it, they would look at all the different groups and they would pit them against each other. And haves and have nots, victims, oppressors. Why? So that they could create riots and crises and panic. And then when everybody panics, they'll come along and say, we'll bring a solution. And people trade freedom for security and then the power gets concentrated. And so this has been perfected, these tactics during the Cold War. And so after World War II, Germany, France, England give, gave independence to their former colonies. And we have brand new countries, Romania, Egypt, India, uh, Israel. And um, it looks hopeful with brand new leaders, except the KGB decides to send agents into these countries and do critical theory. Breaks them into groups, pits them against each other. And then when the rioting gets bad enough, they do a coup or a rigged election, replace the leader with a Soviet puppet. 45 countries fell to communism this way. It's called behind the Iron Curtain. And then the CIA adapted these tactics and did it in reverse, and this is called the Cold War. These tactics we're experiencing in America have been perfected, right, for 70 years. This idea of intentionally creating a crisis. And it was Ronald Reagan in 1961, and governor of California, and he said that, um, that medical crises are the traditional way of instituting socialism. And of course, he's referring to Germany where they put everybody on uh, universal health care, which was great. And then their economy cratered and they had to cut useless expenses from the budget like keeping alive, retarded, insane, epileptic, critically ill. And they kept getting, finally they got rid of Jews in the terrible Holocaust, but it was all originally a healthcare crisis. So why did I share all that? Just to come and encourage you today. And, you know. <laughs> no, but 
So, All right, let's pray. <laughs> but the flip side is the same crises that they're using to concentrate power into the hands of the government. It's in times of crisis that people turn to Christ. And so we're going to see a great revival. Your presence here is evidence of that. Amen. Right? And so you see that what the devil, the devil's not all-knowing. He's blind. You know, lust blinds you to the effects of lust. Right? A guy's got a pretty secretary. He thinks, hey, pleasure time. He doesn't realize, well, if he fools around, he's going to lose his marriage, alienate his kids, lose his job, be shamed in the community, and die alone in a hotel room somewhere. He doesn't see that. Sin blinds you to the effect of sin. Right? And so the devil, is, he himself is blinded by his pride. He, doesn't, he cannot connect the dots. And so the idea is the first prophecy was what? Book of Genesis, that God tells the serpent that the seed of the woman will crush your head, but you'll bruise his heel. And it happens at the same time on the cross where the devil gets the Jews and Gentiles to crucify Jesus, dust his hands, says, that's it. We just got rid of, and then Jesus says, it's finished. And he goes, what's finished? Well, they just participated in sacrificing the Lamb of God so that a just God pours out his wrath on Jesus to took the, take the punishment for all of our sins so all of humanity can now come and have the opportunity to be in fellowship with God again. And the devil gets his head crushed. His authority is taken away. Because all the devil's job is, he's this word Satan means accuser. He's the accuser. He points out your sins to God. He says, God, they sinned. You're just God. You've got to judge them. And God says, I did judge them in Jesus. So we approach this almighty just God through Jesus. And the one thought, do I have another minute? Yeah, I, 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 didn't, I didn't say anything. Keep, hey. So let's stop and look at it from God's point of view. So here's God. He exists for eternity. Eternity upon eternity upon eternity. He's always existed. He's, and he's all powerful. It's not that he knows everything. It's impossible for him not to know everything. And everything follows rules. Right? Laws of planetary motion, laws of gravity, laws of science, laws of physics. laws, And, and there, he has laws for human behavior. We just have the choice as to whether or not to follow the laws. But he is a God of laws. He is a just God. And, um, but he's all-powerful, and he exists for eternity. He knows everything. And, uh, you know, I was watching the YouTube video on the Hubble Telescope Deep Space Field. So in 2003, they focused the Hubble Telescope on a spot in the sky where there's nothing. The spot is tiny. If you were to hold a grain of sand between your fingers at arm's length against the night sky, that's how tiny of a spot they focused this Hubble telescope on for 10 days. When they developed the images, in that spot where there was nothing were 10,000 galaxies with a trillion stars in each galaxy, innumerable planets. You know the largest star they found? is Stevenson 2-18. It is a super gas giant. I bet those. <laughs> it's so big that if you were to put Stevenson 2 18 in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. One star. That, we're the third planet from the sun. Couldn't you imagine one star that big? So here is God. He is all power. He's incomprehensibly powerful. He, he holds all what you described in the palm of his hand, yeah. from the middle finger to his thumb. And, and then they go the other direction, and they got the, 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 the atoms and neutrons and protons and electrons, and then they do this Haldron Collider where it's 20 miles underground, right? And they take these protons, and they smash them into each other, and they watch these little parts come off, and they give them names, quarks, muons, leptons, and flavors, and all kinds of different things. And they say that it's called the theory of uncertainty because these things will, will exist for fractions of a second and then disappear. And so they say that at any one point in time, they're in existence and not in existence. And God is holding it all. And what can you and I possibly offer this person that created it all? So sometime in eternity past, God said, you know, been there, done that. I can create galaxies and things that obey me. I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Now it gets interesting because love by definition must be voluntary. The moment God would force you to love him, he himself would know he's forcing you to love him, and he would know that your response is not a pure love response. And so he hides himself behind creation because if he ever revealed himself, I mean, here is a being that creates galaxies. If he, every molecule in your body would fall flat and worship him, and he wouldn't know if you're worshiping him because you made a voluntary decision to love him or if just because he is so incomprehensibly awesome. 
So I tell people he, he hides himself behind creation. It's, it's like a billionaire has a son who goes to college and he drives up in his Maserati, Lamborghini. He's got gold rings, Rolex watches, fancy clothes, and he's going to have every girl on campus wanting to meet him. But if he lays all that aside, and he wouldn't know if they're, they're liking him for him or, or just because of all this stuff. But if he leaves, leaves that aside and drives up in a clunker and he's got holes in his jeans, the uppity girls are going to ignore him. And uh, then he's going to meet some girl that likes to study with him in the library. They get to become friends. And, uh, and then she takes heat from her clique because she's hanging around this nobody guy. And then they fall in love and get engaged. And then he says, I want to take you back to meet my dad. <laughs> and they're like driving up to this mansion, castle, estate. And she says, whoa, you didn't tell me about all this. He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff. So here's this God of creation. If he revealed him, every political ladder climber, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, he lays that aside, comes to earth humble as a man. And so we have the free opportunity. So inside of this entire universe that God controls, he creates this itsy-bitsy little thing that he does not control, your will. I mean, he could control it if he wanted to, but then the whole thing would be, would be pointless. He creates this little thing of your will where you get to decide a voluntary choice. And he gives you the grace to do it. You know, I was looking at my credit card. It's got a chip. The chip has no battery. But if I go to a grocery store, put a bunch of products there, and I plug the chip in, the, the machine sends an electronic signal to the chip. The chip responds, and the transaction is made. But if that chip hardens its heart, if it's hardens and broken and won't work, it'll send the, there's no transaction. God sends you the signal inside of the gospel message is the grace, the pull for you to respond to the message. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. You just, just, just respond. Just call upon the name of the Lord. And you will be saved. This God of the universe. So God is a just God. He has to judge every sin, but he's a loving God that he provides the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. So that's why we approach this almighty, all-powerful, perfect just God, but we approach him through the lamb, his only son that he provided that took the judgment for our sins. And so in communion, we remember that Jesus, and the, the one thought is, I'm, I got a degree in accounting, so I like things that, that, uh, that balance. So Jesus is an eternal being who's innocent and he suffers for a finite period of time is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who's innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Infinity times finite equals finite times infinity. And a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Jesus experienced that day on the cross as if it was a thousand years. And you read the book of Revelation, one thing that seems clear, it's God that's pouring out the vials of judgment. Why? It's the final judge. God is just God, so we have to judge every sin that he missed along the way. So in that sense, Jesus took the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. He took the judgment, the wrath of God for every sin that everybody would ever commit upon himself on the cross. That's why he was sweating drops of blood. And he experiences it if it was a thousand years. In other words, he experienced the equivalent of eternal damnation in all of our places so that we could be free from sin we could approach this almighty, all-powerful, just God without even a consciousness of sin because Jesus took the punishment in our place. That's what we remember with communion. I'll take it from here. And so uh, in your chair, you, you have this, and the, it's kind of funky. You got the, the breads on the top part and then the cups on the bottom part. You'll figure it out. Uh, the order that we typically operate in is the bread first, the cup second, because the body had to be broken before the blood could be shed. Now, if you screw up the order, I've always said, you're still going to heaven. But understand, don't take this lightly. Examine yourself. We, we tend in the Protestant church to take this sacrament and, and just kind of see it as an exercise in futility. This, this is representative in many respects of the Seder or the Passover meal, longest running family meal in history. And it's unified a people 
that were once enslaved and set free in the whole meal is about deliverance. You now participate in that family of freedom. Christ has come to set the captives free. You're part of that family. But to be part of that family means you need to defend that family. No weapon fashioned against you will stand. You will contend for the freedom of your children and your grandchildren and for those around you. You'll not bow to tyranny. You will not subject yourself to fear. You are now in the family and and we are children of the king. You're a child of the king. You're royalty. This is what God has come and he's, he's created us as servants. If you want to be great in his kingdom, be a servant of all. A servant lays his life down. Doesn't matter what happens to us. We want mankind to be connected to God and that truth would no longer be suppressed or censored. We're gonna stand for that no matter what it costs because he gave us everything. We're giving him our lives. That's what's wrapped up in this. It's not an exercise in futility. It's a family meal. You're part of the family. If you profess Christ as your savior, you are now more than a conqueror. You're a new creature in Christ. You no longer operate in fear. It's now faith and good works prepared beforehand that you'd walk in those. And I'll tell you what, I'm really hoping the room shakes because this is a time where God is moving in the hearts of his people. So I pray God's richest blessing on you. Lord, we thank you for this time of communion. You say as often as we do this, we do this in remembrance of you. You are our Lord and our Savior. You are our King. We love you. We praise you and we thank you for so great a sacrifice that would set us free from the slave block of sin and that we would be new creatures in Christ, no longer enslaved but free, free in the kingdom of God, as adopted, grafted into the family of God that you have made us your children. We love you and we thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for making that possible as our Savior, our Messiah. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You just take it at your leisure. And then as you finish, you can worship with us.